Kia ora everyone. Uh, just before this episode gets started, I need to put a disclaimer out there that the audio quality is not the greatest. It's uh, a, a bit muffled, but the content is rich, and uh, I think you can still get something out of it, so I wanted to still go ahead with it. But with the uh, distancing that we have at the moment, have been using other means of recording, and this one... Um, Sounded better while I was doing it, but then when I had to listen to it afterwards, was uh, lower quality than when we were doing the live recording. And so, uh, just my apologies up front, and just a heads up on that. And I uh, hope you're able to still enjoy it and get something out of it. And we'll uh, try to uh, sort it out for um, uh, future recordings. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Hope everyone's staying safe, and uh, hope you enjoy the episode. Say, Nisa Bolovinaka. Uh, this is another episode of Indigenous Words and Ideas. Why? I'm your host, Arsete Kuhn. And today I've got special co-host, uh, colleague, friend, Tuakana uh, Apurosa, um, a.k.a. the Night Rose. Nah, just playing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll let, him, uh, I'll let you introduce yourself, bro. Hey, I'm uh, this is, uh, It's good to do this because we've been talking about it for a long time. Uh, the thing I won't explain is the Night Rose. I'll leave that. That's a whole series in itself, isn't it? Like a horror movie, Stephen King thing. Um, so, as I said, my name is Aprosa. I am maternally related to the village of Nanduri uh, in northern Fiji. Um, so, that's obviously on my mum's side. Um, my great uh, great grandmother is full blooded Fijian. She married a European, that's why I married a European, and uh, that's how I ended up by being born. Uh, here in New Zealand, but um, have spent um, uh, quite a bit of my life in Fiji. Um, I was privileged to spend almost 10 years in the early 2000s or over that um, 2000 to 2009 period um, in Fiji, uh, working in rural Fiji, living in a village um, of Natakalao, which is on the island of Kandabu, where my auntie is married to, farming cover there. Yeah, it was during that period of time that a uh, situation happened that I think we might get onto a bit later on with the Fiji Ministry of Education. And that kind of led me into the whole research area, which I never, ever thought I would do. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a bit about me. Oh, just very quickly, uh, just to add on to that to give a little bit more context, I'm currently working at the University of Waikato. Um, I'm funded by the New Zealand Health Research Council to do work in the area of carver, particularly related to cognition and um, driver safety. And so I work at Tehutaki Waiora, which is our School of Health. So that's... Uh, that's where I am at the moment. Oh, awesome. Thanks for uh, that introduction. Uh, also, for folks that are interested, like a, a lot of your work is available on aporosa.net. Um, also, academia.edu. If you look up Aporosa and Kava, you'll find him as well. So a lot of your work is available um, to, to the public, which is great. And as we get into it, maybe how would you introduce or define Kava and uh, the role of Kava and identity? So um, kava is um, both the plant and the drink that's made from the plant or the Pocantisticum plant. Was it ethnobotany says that, um, that kava first originated in northern Vanuatu. And so um, around about 2,500 years ago when the Austronesians came down into the Pacific and the Lapita Pottery people and all that gang, um, they got into Vanuatu, obviously found kava. And um, one of the, the questions that we're assuming came out of that was, we have a plant here, and I'm speaking from the perspective of the early Austronesians, we have a plant here that is asexual and has to be planted manually or propagated manually. How is it possible that this thing has survived 
It must therefore have been the gods that planted this car. Well, this is this is what we understand their thinking would have been back then. It must have been the gods that planted this, this kava plant. Um, and that's really where the first ideas of kava being the plant of the gods came from, or a plant of the gods. So right back from the start is this understanding as we kind of look back 2,500 years ago that kava was this, uh, this thing that was connected to the gods that had some form of spiritual power. So we're talking about a plant that originated in northern Vanuatu, but since then has kind of hybridized and moved on um, in its species form. And now they believe that there's around about 300 different species of kava in northern Vanuatu. But what we understand today, the thing that we drink today, um, is, is a couple of those particular species, and we tend to drink the roots of that. The root plant take around about three years to grow, pull them out after three years, dry them out for Fijians and, and Tongans and Samoans. Uh, people in uh, Western Pacific or Oceania, Western Oceania tend to pound up the roots green, like pound them up. We tend to dry them, pound them up uh, in the Fijian area and uh, what have you. Dry them out, mix them with water. The the drink that comes out of the other side is um, is what we call kava. So we're talking about both a plant and a drink from it. Super interesting. The the you know kind of to build off what you said there with um, like the asexuality of the plant, right? So it doesn't self propagate. It doesn't. It, it needs to be planted in order to to grow and uh, to diversify. And so that's a really interesting kind of early observation, right? Of why it's often associated as this uh, elixir of the gods or also, you know, has uh, connections to, to kind of deep senses of a spirituality from the indigenous perspectives. And kind of on that note, I'm wondering if, yeah, maybe we could uh, have you talk a little bit about how kava is associated with mana or, or maybe introduce the, the concept of mana as it relates to kava because of its th- these deep origins. And then maybe we'll get into kind of the, I guess, the effects of that mana once you ingest it. Yeah, and that, and that kind of goes right back to this whole idea that, again, who planted this thing? If humans weren't around, it, it must have been the gods. It must be the plant of the gods. Therefore, this plant must be imbued in a way with mana or spiritual power. And I think right back from the beginning, there's this idea that this plant has has the power of the gods in it. And then uh, we know today that kava has a number of medicinal properties. If we think back in the earlier period when kava would have first been found, it's almost like there's the stamp of approval. This thing can even be used for medicine. Uh, we know it's got mild antibiotic properties. We know it's a mild analgesic, and it can be used to greatly relieve um, urinary tract infections and what have you. So again, it's almost like there's the stamp of approval. It must be from the gods. It must be a possession of money. Therefore, we must take it with us because as we take it with us, we carry the gods with us. And so there's this whole idea of mana starting to unfold from the inception. Yeah, and, and the belief then is that kava then moved throughout the, the remaining Pacific, even as far as Fly River Delta in Papua New Guinea, where they continue to use kava today. Up into Hawaii, Tahiti, kava moved and, and, and therefore kind of we, we have this belief today that because we have this plant that has the power of the gods in it, it's also a medicine, we must take it with us. We have to have it with us. As we're traveling out into that unknown sea, heading out to wherever we're going to, we need this thing as a protectorate. And so therefore you've got these building ideas of uh, 
Kaaba is this is this drink and this plant that carries the gods or God with it. And these are the kind of the, the notions that come out that link it to these ideas of manna and spiritual power. Oh, choice, bro. So if Kava's manna, right, because it's associated with this, uh, you know, being this elixir of, of the gods or the ancestors or, or a god, um, because of the, it, it doesn't propagate in, uh, by itself um, and it requires people to plant it, um, then what are the effects, right, of, of drinking Kava or ingesting Kava? What is it, what, how does it make you feel? What does it taste like? And again, keeping in mind, right, that, there's so many different kinds that there's a spectrum there. So um, in relation to the taste of kava, it, it's a little bit peppery flavored and is quite earthy. Um, but I, I don't think it's, um, it's not foul or, or disgusting or anything like that. I'm interested in a number of people the first time they try it will often say, oh, it's not what I expected in this year. But again, there's, because there, as I was saying earlier on, that there's a variety of different kava species. Carver can taste different depending on the species that you're drinking. So I've had a variety of different flavored carvers, but um, it's, it's not a bad, uh, it's not a bad flavor in, in my in my opinion. But again, we we don't drink carver because of its taste. We drink it because of its cultural importance. So um, how does carver make you feel after drinking carver for say an hour? You'll start to feel your body relax. Um, it doesn't really interfere with your mind. Um, um, and, and cause any type of hallucinogenic um, feelings or, or euphoria or anything like that. There may be a little bit of an impression that there's euphoria because kava tends to work on your central nervous system and slows the, um, the electrical pulses through your nervous system. Um, so it can, it can interfere a little bit with your optic nerves, optical nerves, so you think that you are a little bit euphoric, but that's not actually the case. The, the other thing about kava is that because it doesn't interfere with your, with your mind like alcohol and a number of other drugs, you, you, you remain clear-minded. And I like the thing that um, Professor Peter Diabs, and this guy is from the uh, Darwin School of Medicine, said, made a comment that unlike um, alcohol, cover does not lead to violent behavior um, and does not, and this is a quote, befuddle the mind and can be used to stimulate clear-headed discussion, which I think that gives a really uh, good indication of what carver is. And another um, uh, writer on carver, a guy, Guy Lemert, he talks about that kava has the ability to re release aggressive impulses. And when I say release, as in take them away. If anything, this is what he says, if anything kava inhibits or disassociates them, you cannot hate with kava in you. And that's one of the things I really like is drinking kava with people you don't, don't have to be concerned about people getting aggressive or, or anything like that. So pretty much that's, in, in, in a nutshell, uh, without going into the psychopharmacology of kava, it's really how kava tastes and is experienced. Yeah, no, I love how you explain that. I feel like that's why it's associated with mana, like the, the honor and prestige or potency, because um, as you explain it, that's how I, I think about, you know, you, you're able to have good conversations because, and you can even have hard conversations and that's supported by, you know, the anti-anxiety properties of kava. It, it's not the kava itself alone, but it's activated through its cultural context which again is very diverse across um, Oceania, but has similar functions in 
dealing with, in a sense, revelations of truth, whether that's something inside of you that's bottled up and the you know, removal of anxiety allows you to bring that up or, or being able to talk about difficult truths or in other cases where, you know, Talanoa may be not the most central thing, like in places like Northern Vanuatu, um, there's still the social component of preparing it and, and listening to Kava, you know, and, and connecting with ancestors. And so there is, as you mentioned, um, all these different ways in which uh, the, the mana of Kava um, plays out in different societies. And so I'm wondering if you can comment on, because some of your work has been on Kava as a keystone species and how even though there's a diversity of practices and use of Kava, what, what do you mean uh, or what does it mean for it to be a keystone species um, in Oceania? And, and what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, um, um, just, just uh, I know you mentioned it uh, earlier on, brothers, that, but you were talking about the fact that people can um, get, get hold of any of um, the stuff that we're talking about today online through um, my website. And so the stuff that I'm now telling you um, and we're discussing is, is all stuff that is available. And um, when we talk about keyst cultural keystone species, it's in the paper that I wrote on um, called Carbon Ethnocultural Identity in Oceania. And I, you know, I start off that paper by quoting Garibaldi and Turner. And what they do is they talk about how that there are certain plants that play like a keystone role in shared ancestry and practices and the social experience of an ethnicity. And they talk about plants as being um, for, for different um, people groups, this thing that um, includes spiritual connection and cultural expression and practice, ceremony, exchange. You can, they talk about these plants in linguistic reflection. It's used in socialization. It's a plant that is used in medicinal and dietary um, systems as well. And so this is what, when we're talking about cultural keystone species, we're talking about plants that play a cultural keystone role um, and carver for Pacific people um, absolutely is this thing. And again, is, is driven by this idea that it's a plant of the gods, that it contains mana, obviously it's medicine as well. So, um, you know, in, in the minds of, of Pacific people, it has to be this plant of the gods. And I think a really good way to, ex to explain the, the, the belief and the power that underlines this thing um, of kava, we have a, a practice in Fiji called Mataninga Sao. And Mataninga Sao is where, let's say I've done something to offend you. I come to you and I bring kava and I present it to you and then I apologize to you for the wrong that I've done. And if you were to accept the kava, and in turn accept my apology. If I was then to go back and do again what I apologized for, there's this belief that the mana of the kava can come and curse you. So there's this, there's the, there's a whole lot of different functions that, that these spiritual aspects of kava drive. And one of the things of Mataninga Sao, I've seen some, uh, um, I've seen Mataninga Sao that has been very, very serious. And people have accepted this to the point where I think this is my European background is going, really, you would accept that apology? But I think the thing that, that drives it, that people will accept an apology related to kava and the spirituality of kava, again, because of this fear that um, if I offend or if I break my agreement or I go against my apology, this thing could come back and curse me. So now, you know, we're talking about... Um, culturally driven systems of justice and, and that type of thing. So that's an example of kava and mana. 
I, I like what Vincent Lebeau, uh, I would say, the Kava guru, says, it says that um, Kava plays a unique role in the social life of many Pacific societies as part of asserting their cultural identity. And I think as a high-level comment to cover off the Pacific, that is, uh, that is ap absolutely correct. And I, I mentioned um, a little bit earlier on about the use of Kava in uh, Papua New Guinea. So the Middle Fly district region um, of, of uh, Papua New Guinea with the Gugodala people, that continues to be used today there and is, is linked to ideas of power and the gods and or God. Also too in Pompeii and, um, in the Federated States of Micronesia. And uh, Mike Gallick uh, has done a lot of work in that area related to Kava. And his comment is that Kava is a defining aspect of Pompeian, um, as in we're talking about Pompeian Federa Federated States of Micronesia, not Italy, um, is a defining Pompeian cultural aspect of identity. So you've got these, um, these continuing um, narratives across the Pacific as to the importance of Kava in Vanuatu. Kava plays an important role in custom, K-A-S-T-O, in custom. And Young writes about uh, Kava being a symbol of national identity. Dr. Sitaliki uh, Finau talks about Tongans have maintained their, their cultural identity through Kava. Edmund Fairhoko, a mate of ours, and, and who we've done uh, the work, uh, Kava work with and drunk a lot of Kava with, where he talks about Kava being this, this thing that sits in the middle of a cultural classroom. And which facilitate the the learning of language, of song, and that type of thing, playing a cultural keystone role in uh, in identity. Moving on, Samoa. A, a comment I have drawn out of a book here from uh, Minahan says that Kava in Samoa is considered an important cultural symbol and a traditional sign of hospitality. Tengen Taitengen talks about. Uh, the, the, the importance of uh, Kava in Hawaii. It goes on and on. This, this thing is undoubtedly the most dominant symbol and representation of identity uh, across the Pacific. In Fiji, we call uh, Kava Yangwana. In high-level speak, or when we're doing presentations or what have you, Kava is called Waini Vanua. And Wai, as in Pacific Wai, is known as water. Ni is of. And Vanua, Waini Vanua, Vanua is, is the word that we use for the land, the culture, and the people. So there's this idea that Kava in Fiji is this ingestible manifestation of the land, the culture, and the people. And that as a Fijian, you should drink Kava. So again, Kava is critically tied up um, with the, the whole idea of identity as a Fijian, drinking cover as, a, as, as part of being a Fijian, and drinking it when you are living in diaspora away from Fiji, which continues to link you back to your homeland of Fiji, because in effect, well, in front of me now, you've got a bowl of cover in front of me. I have the Waini Vanua, I have the water of the Vanua, the land of culture and the people in front of me, so as I'm ingesting it, I'm ingesting Everything that is important to me, my, my ancestry, um, God for me, or the God for some other people. And, and that's, you know, for Fijians, this is their Waini Vanua. This is their most dominant icon of cultural identity. Um, but how, do, how does this then get negotiated when you're on the ancestral lands of other people, right? And I know that, um, especially with, with you and a lot of folks down in Kirikiriroa, there's a lot of, I feel, uh, a good example of 
respect, collaboration, and relationships with uh, local uh, Tangata Fenua, and uh, which I think is a good example for, for other cases. And so how does Vakaturanga play out in diaspora? And um, how does that, because I know you've made comments as well of, you know, thinking of, uh, about uh, being uh, in diaspora, how people in diaspora come into the Sakava circles, also how people are relating uh, with indigenous folks and, and even our critiques of Australia, right? And, and you've mentioned uh, Mata Nivanua as well, like where on one hand Kava's why Nivanua, Mata Nivanua would be like the, the death of the land or the cursing because there's, there's an imbalance. Uh, anyways, I've said a lot there, but what, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that and, and what and to kind of explain? Rakaturanga is this um, set of ideal values that, that underlie the ideal Fijian. Okay, so it's this idea that, um, that you will behave in a chiefly manner regardless of whether you are a chief or not. It's about embracing it and continually using respect. I think that's a key word when we come back to, I'll come back to it at the end, but it's about respect, it's about being um, humble, it's about knowing your place in, in the community, it's about fulfilling your obligations, it's about sharing and caring and forgiveness and being helpful and being of a quiet demeanor. Now, what I, when I talk about this, I talk about these ideals. And it can be very easy to say, oh, look at that person, they are not Vakaturanga. These are, these are things that we're trying to work on and embrace in our life all the time. So um, the, the whole ideals and the morals behind this whole thing of Vakaturanga really is respect. And we will call um, many kava circles or the drinking of kava, we will call it Yangana Vakaturanga, meaning we are, we are keeping the ideals, the chiefly ideals and the ideals of Vakaturanga and the respect happening and ongoing around the, around the kava bowl. And I think that's too why I've, I've been to thousands of kava uh, sessions. I have never once seen a fight. I've never seen anyone get um, physically aggressive. I have seen somebody tell somebody else off, which was deserved. This is, that's inappropriate behaviour. But it's this whole thing that we should be maintaining respect. And um, Kava is a place of respect. It's, it, it is driven by these ideals of Vakaturanga. So when we talk about coming into diaspora and coming to, uh, let's use the, the, the place of New Zealand as, as an example, often when we sit down and we drink Kava and we acknowledge people who are present, one of the things that we acknowledge is, is, the, is the kingitanga, is what, what we as Fijians see as the, the chief of Aotearoa New Zealand, the, the holder of the kingitanga title, the, the, the Māori king in, in this case. And so it's respecting, showing respect to the people of the land, respecting particularly Māori who come into the cover drinking set, uh, setting, and also to showing respect to others regardless of who they are. And I've drunk kava with, I think of ethnicities that I haven't drunk kava with. And it's showing respect to them. Asian, South American, you know, right across the spectrum. I've drunk kava with them and, and we show them respect. We acknowledge them for who they are. We acknowledge their chief identities. And this is all part of this ideal of wakaturanga and respect around the kava. You know, you're giving these, these awesome examples of, of how um, kava you know, continues to play such a central role, even in contemporary circles of, uh, with, with, you know, Fijians and, and other um, Pacifica folks as well, who have then began to make new relationships with other people, um, which is great. And at the same time, there's another uh, thing going on in contemporary Kava practice, which is 
been through its kind of commodification and at times mixing it with other substances, other contemporary practices that may be doing different stuff. That then leads on to this um, whole idea of exactly what is kava. And I, I kind of like what, um, again, drawing back on uh, Dr. Vincent Mabowi said, um, he makes this really good comment in the when he was being interviewed by um, by somebody from Radio New Zealand, he said, we want to promote carb for what it is, a very healthy traditional beverage. If some companies, or maybe I'll continue, maybe I'll add a little bit in here, if some carver bars um, want to extract uh, the active ingredients and prepare some capsules or mix something into carver, this is not called carver anymore. Like if you put caffeine in a capsule, you can't call it coffee. If you put um, in, in dry raisin peel, you cannot call it wine, and same for tea. Cover is cover. It is the traditional beverage prepared by cold water extraction of the ground um, organs of the plant pythonopistum and nothing else. And I think what's happened is that we often look at the cover bars or the cover lounges of America, and there's this assumption that they must be sitting down like we do on the floor and drinking out of a wooden bowl. Um, and reflecting what we do, however, what we're hearing and what we're seeing on social media by some of these places is not. So maybe then the question is, are they actually drinking kava? I'm not too sure. Mm. Oh, that, I think that's a really good point. You know, what is it that makes it kava? And then, you know, with what you're sharing and with, uh, you know, Vincent LeBeau's work, um, if it's not uh, grounded um, within the context that, that makes it kava, then can it still be? And again, recognizing that there's a diversity of kava practices and protocols um, across Oceania, um, but that nonetheless, those are grounded in and rooted in those indigenous practices and indigenous knowledge. And I think that's an interesting thing that you bring up. What's important for me is what we are doing here and sitting opposite each other now, although we're on, uh, we're on Zoom because of uh, COVID lockdown. But, um, you know, we're sitting opposite each other and we're drinking kava, and so I tend to focus on that. I never did any of my studies for the, for the, for the letters or for the qualification. I did my studies and I, and I got my doctorate um, because I, I knew that I needed something that would be impressive almost to the European uh, sector of society so that when I talked about this cultural thing, they, they sit up and they go, oh, actually, that is important. And so today I will talk about kava and its importance to identity and what we do in a cultural setting. But because I've got DR before my name, people go, oh, absolutely, that must be true. I'm not saying anything different to what I said many years ago. But now, oh, it must be true. That is what I did it for. I've, I've done it to retain or to ensure the continuance of a cultural practice that we have. But I want to continue to drive the importance of, um, of what we do as part of our culture. If it's grounded within Oceania where it's originated, that it's going to evolve and change there too. But that there's certain principles that continue to move through, like you've mentioned, with Vakaturanga and maintaining the sense of respect. Um, and even me, I mean, I mean I'm a, a non-Pacifican who was introduced to Kava in Utah and I privileged the Tongan perspective of Kava because that's what I know mostly, um, but also, you know, getting exposed with you and others like I really love how Fijians uh, mix kava, and so I'm kind of in between the two now. And then we got people like Troy, who is just well-versed across so many different cultures, and you see the, the merging of Tongan, Fijian, and um, even Maori within that circle. So, yeah, definitely, I, I love seeing how it changes and adapts. 
Um, but maybe to wrap up this section before we get into the myths of God, I'm wondering if any last minute thoughts that you might have. Yeah, no. um, I, and I will, I was just going to pick up the thing. I remember the first time I, I saw you drinking cover and uh, I said to somebody, oh, where, they're Tongan fellow over there drinking cover. Um, tell me about them. And they were going, and they were pointing, and I was pointing towards you and they were, and they was, they were kind of trying to tell me that, no, you weren't this Tongan guy. And I said, Yes, yes, this Tongan guy drinking cover, and I think in that because with with your with your ancestry of Guatemala, and you do look at, you do look Tongan, but it was the way that you had embraced and moved into cover yourself, and that your understanding, um, and and the way that and, and having known you for a while, your respect of cover and your respect of the people, that right there is where we don't have any problem with with other with non-pacific people coming in because it comes down to that respect thing, you know and again uh, you picked up on the whole idea that um cover is grounded in the pacific but even within the pacific context it's changing and shifting you know it's um we are not drinking cover the same that in fiji that we were 200 years ago you know um so it is a moving fluid thing but i think what underpins that movement and that fluidity must be respected it must be if it's Fiji and the values of Bakaturanga, if it's if it's Tongan Anga Bakatonga, you know, if it's um um Samoa, if it's from Samoa, you know, it's that one thing that underpins it that keeps Kava what it always was. This one we'll, we'll kind of get into um, some of your other work with the myths of kava because in contemporary practices and use like the other thing that's happened right is kava is a lot more globally visible than it was before now of course of people from the pacific that isn't a new thing because you know especially with rugby and sport like a lot of people have gone to europe or even through the military have ended up in different places and so kava has been global for a while but it's, I guess, mainstream visibility has increased a lot. And that also influences uh, mainstream visibility and understanding of Kava, but even Pacific communities and their perceptions of Kava and kind of combating the myths that have been created around Kava in this visibility and wondering if we can kind of uh, uh, have you share some of that with, with your work around that. And what does Kava do? What does it not do? What are the, are, in the sense of like, what are the myths around Kava and then maybe let's bust some of those myths mm -hmm. as we go. So I'll let you start with whichever one you want to start with. Um, yeah, just recently I published in a paper in, a paper in the Journal of Drug Science, um, Policy and Law, and it was aimed at, at, just as you say, trying to bust some of these myths that are absolutely prolific. Um, if you were to start typing into Google Carver Causes, the first thing that's going to pop up is liver damage. And so it, it, it was these ongoing... Um, um, narratives that were constantly getting thrown back at me. Oh, why are you drinking that alcohol? Or, um, oh, I, I see all, the, all those Pacific Islanders are addicted to time. So um, I, I kind of hunted around and there was pockets of things had been written about um, the fact that carver is not alcohol, carver is not addictive, blah, blah, blah. I felt that I needed to bring together into one setting and to one paper, particularly in a policy um, journal, which would then influence governments and that type of thing. What are the facts about cover? And that was what sort of motivated me to write that paper, um, which interestingly enough, maybe by the time this goes to air, there's a, a more of a user-friendly type of research publication magazine called um, Research Outreach, comes out of the UK, called Demythologizing and Rebranding 
the traditional gym cover. Um, so, so we'll kind of draw on that. But one of the big things is um, people who constantly tell me that, uh, that kava is alcohol. And um, this whole idea that kava is alcohol, um, from if, we, if we read back in history, appears to have um, originated when Johann Foster, who was a botanist on Captain Cook's boat, The Endeavour, named kava Pythomethysticum. And the word Mephisticum is a Greek word for intoxicating. So even in the naming of this plant, Pythomethysticum, it gave the impression that we had this intoxicating pepper plant. So you have these ideas that have sort of evolved over the years and you've got um, other writings by um, early colonial people saying, you know, that the islanders just sat around all drinking this their own alcohol and getting drunk, you know. Um, so this has sort of progressed onto sensational media reports, one of which I saw, I think, about two years, either a year or two years ago now, from Australia and Northern Territory, where it says that kava basically decimates everything and turns people into zombies. And I'm like, really? Okay, so we've got this, this uh, substance which has been through a pile of chemical analysis, which has been proven that it's not alcohol. It doesn't cause hallucinogenic, you know, effects or, or is not markedly euphoric. However, it's this idea that it is alcohol. So that was one of the one of the ideas that I that I you know did this myth busting with and drew Professor Peter Debs from Melbourne School of Medicine who talks about carver is um, used and in in, in, um, in facilitating clear headed discussion. So that was one of the myths um, um, that carver is not alcohol, doesn't cause the same effects as alcohol, doesn't even cause the same effects as marijuana. It's, it's not alcohol, it's not marijuana. However, because of early uh, European observations and even the naming, that seems to have been where a lot of the, the associations have, have um, been made. However, mm, mm. different. So what is what would you say because it is often compared to these other things, whether it should be or not, right? What would you, where is the kava safety level at from what you've seen in the recent uh, research? Okay, um, yeah, some really good work was done by the WHO um, in 2000 and, uh, what was it, 2007, and again, I think it was in 2016, their latest report. Um, WHO have done some really good work looking at the safety levels of kava, and this particularly came out of what we, what is known um, in the kava world as the European kava ban. So starting in the early 2000s, there were were reports that 83 um, patients in uh, Europe who were taking kava tablets. Now kava tablets, when we talk about those, kava tablets are where six of the active ingredients of kava have been taken out and put into a capsule and they've been given to people um, to aid anxiety, aid their depression and what have you. So there's these reports starting in the early 2000s that uh, 83 patients taking um, kava tablets as a herbal remedy had died. Okay, so it led to what was known as the European kava ban, um, where kava was pulled off all the shelves and it was illegal to drink kava in a number of, of countries. The question then started to be asked following this, that why weren't there dead islanders all over the place who had been drinking kava for hundreds of years? And the starting point on trying to address that was actually going back to another issue that we discussed in this previous part where Vince, Dr. Vincent Lebeau talked about the fact that kava is kava. It's this thing that we mix with water. It's not something in a tablet. It's not kava. And so then there was a further discussion saying, well, that apparently these 83 people who had died had been taking a tablet form of kava. It was then uh, also found out that they had comorbid conditions, um, you know, existing liver complaints and what have you. 
So what resulted in that was a, a big uh, a lawsuit. And in uh, 2014, Germany's federal court came out and said that the, that the deaths that had been reported, um, that it was very unlikely that that had been contributed directly to kava, as we know it, as in the, the thing that we mix in the bowl with water, and that, um, the, that liver damage from kava was um, so rare that it was essentially negligible. And that in, in the kava, uh, in the European kava band, what had resulted is a tarnishing, an unfair tarnishing of, of kava. So, so this whole idea that kava damages the liver unfortunately persists. But what persists really is the fact that there is the potential or the possibility of kava tablet forms if taken by people with comorbid or existing conditions, that kava tablet forms of kava are interacting with it, are causing danger. I think a really good comment that came out of all of that process of looking back at the uh, Carver um, situation in Europe, there's two actually. One of them comes from Professor Showman in the States and her and her colleagues wrote that said that only a fraction of a handful of cases reviewed for Carver toxicity as in liver damage could be with any certainty linked to Carver consumption. And most of those involved the co-ingestion of other medicines or supplements. And then I think the key one that we often point back to now um, in good writing, and when I'm talking about good writing, people who have researched kava and are talking within the authority of kava, they point to the World Health Organization's second kava risk assessment report of 2016, and this is what the WHO says. They said, on balance, the weight of evidence from both a long history of use of kava beverage and from the more recent research findings indicate that it is possible for kava beverage to be consumed with an acceptably low level of health. Here's another point that's really interesting on this. If you have a look at the hepatotoxicity or liver damage per year from over-the-counter medications like paracetamol, they are higher than what reported liver damage is from kava as we drink it from um, this aqueous liver, uh, sorry, aqueous um, beverage that we drink out of the kava box. So again, you know, these are the tensions that we're dealing with and it goes back to, well, is this thing in a tablet, is it carver, is it not carver, causing damage, this thing that we're drinking as a bowl isn't causing damage, it's these ongoing tensions, you know, and so, again, that's part of the myth-busting, and I'm now trying to think back to the original question that you asked me, and I'm really hoping I answered it, maybe I've gone off track. Yeah, yeah, no, that's perfect, thinking about the carver safety levels, and I'm glad you brought up the, the, the ban in Europe as well, and so, you know, just to kind of clarify the, those things, and, and why there was those misunderstandings or confusions. And again, you know, tablet form being a different thing and who is it affecting and who is it not. And, and I'm wondering if, if on that note, maybe we, we can talk about some of the, the, you know, even though we're busting these myths, like these are such prevalent narratives uh, around kava that uh, there's other myths that emerge, such as like kava impacts the livelihoods of, of, of Pacific peoples, and, and the stigmas that exist around kava, even within the communities at times. And so I'm wondering if maybe that's an opportunity for us to talk about how those myths. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so one of them is that, you know, look at those islanders that are sitting there all day drinking that stuff. They must be addicted to it. So if we very quickly deal with the addiction issue, um, there's lots of, re lots of research um, that really questions this whole assumption about kava um, being addictive. And particularly when when you look at the use of kava in addiction therapy, so there's the kava, what they call kava 
Carvitation, which was a anti-smoking um, program that was run in Marlborough in New Zealand. They brought a whole lot of smokers in there, gave them carver as part of addiction therapy, and 90% of them quit at the end of it. It's, I can continue to go on about the, the different areas where carver has been used in addiction therapy, but apparently, look at those islanders, they sit all day and they drink carver, they must be addicted to it. So these kind of narratives build up. The reality is that Pacific Islanders are great at sitting around talking, regardless of whether they've got carver in front of them or not. But there tends to be carver becomes the focus. And then you alluded to the fact that, you know, carver's taking money out of the house. Well, actually, if you compare um, the cost of six people drinking carver over a night compared to going to a nightclub, carver is nowhere near as expensive as, as, a, as a good night at a nightclub for one person, you know. Um, we've got other issues there. Look, Carver's taking men away from their families. What about the man who sits down all weekend, uh, for instance, and plays uh, video games and doesn't spend any time with their kids? Does the controller get blamed? What about the, the husband or the partner who goes surfing all weekend and isn't with the kids? Does the surfboard get blamed? The interesting thing here is that Carver gets the blame for men being absent from their families. And what I like, what I do say to people, and like to say here, is that it's not cover that's the focus or the problem. It's often poor choice, regardless of whether it's cover, going to cover, playing um, you know, computer games or Xbox on weekend, or going surfing or whatever. It's poor choices that should be the focus and not cover. But it's unfortunately these narratives that are built up around cover. They, yeah, they're perpetuating and added to that. Have you seen it? If you type in, you know, carver causes into Google, it'll come up with liver, liver damage as well, you know. So you've got these narratives which have been going for many, many years, driven originally by these ideas that, you know, that, that the Pacific Islanders are drinking this. Um, they're driven by these ideas right from the, from the get-go that, um, that, that carver is, is, you know, this type of mephistican or this intoxicating pepper which is, causing people to sit around all day and become zombies. So you know, it's these types of things that we're battling with, I know you're battling with, and um, we're going to get there one day. And I'm wondering, just because I'm looking at the time as well, and I'm probably going to just bother you another time and we'll, we can do some more. But before we wrap this one up, I'm wondering if maybe have you, I mean, there's so much more that there is in regards to banning, you know, religion. Uh, maybe we'll do one just on religion at some point um, and, and we can look at the spectrum of the, the way that that plays out and, um, uh, and, and all the different things that you've done. But just to kind of begin wrapping it up, just so, you know, the other thing, right, is, is during the, the lockdown, um, you've been leading these uh, Kava sessions internationally that, the, you know, when I chimed in last week, there was people from several countries from around the Asia Pacific Rim um, and which and it was great and it's a way to kind of encourage folks to maintain their social connections even though we have to be physically distant at this time and so I know we got that coming up soon so to, to begin wrapping up I'm wondering if maybe you could just give a little bit of a of an introduction and update to some of the work you're doing around Kava and driving mm. and um, and things that people can maybe be looking out for or uh, that they should be mindful of as well, because again, it's not alcohol, and we're talking about something very different, you know. And what kind of kava you have, how much you're drinking, how long you're drinking, whether you're sleeping or not, seem to be other factors that come into play. And so, what 
what's going on with the Kaaba and driving and, and, and uh, maybe some advice around it. Right, uh, good stuff. Yeah, we do. We have the what is called the, uh, very shortly coming up, the COVID-19 um, isolation carbon mix. Uh, so yeah, we're about to get a whole lot of people on board with that. Um, so we're going to tune in from all around the world. So looking forward to that. It's a time where I can switch off my brain off a little bit and uh, just sit back and relax and, and to talk probably until earlier hours of tomorrow morning. But um, just picking up on what you're saying about the carbon and driving, um, I'm really fortunate to have been funded by the New Zealand Health Research Council. We have um, a huge Pacific population here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, who are drinking kava. And um, so the New Zealand government, um, we had a discussion uh, a couple of years ago, and they're really keen to understand what is happening in the area of driving. And um, uh, unfortunately, Pacific people are overrepresented in uh, motor vehicle accident statistics in this country, um, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So they kind of wanted to know what's going on here. and um, people that I was dealing with in the government, thinking people understood that carbon was not alcohol, as you said. Um, so that's also an important thing to me because if carbon is this thing that is uh, respect, getting on the road and plowing into somebody after drinking too much carbon is not respect. So, you know, uh, it was it was a good opportunity for me to look at it. So the New Zealand government um, has funded me to do that. Um, we ran some initial tests using uh, industry standard um, um, drug driving assessment, um, and which was uh, computer-based um, uh, tests. We ran 40 people, and uh, you were one of them, through um, through the test. Uh, drank kava for six hours, as we do traditionally. So this is not tablet uh, kava. So it was 3.6 litres of kava over six hours. Um, did a pre-test, so we had some sort of baseline data, did a midway test and an end test. And the interesting thing, using these industry standard tests of drug driving, after six hours of carbon drinking, they showed no effect to um, reaction time or divided attention. When I'm talking about divided attention, I'm talking about driving, but also screaming at the kids in the back to shut up and sit down, you know, trying to do two things at once. And, it and the interesting thing of it is that carbon showed no impact to those. However, looking at the carbon drinkers, you could see that there was something going on. There was slightly slowed speech, slightly slowed movement, which was suggesting something was happening. So I was very fortunate to go back uh, to Health Research Council funded, as I say, by the New Zealand government and put this to them and say, look, we've got no results coming up on these tests, but we believe we have another test that's going to show something. So we've just finished uh, doing that testing. It's using um, a device called the Brain Gauge, which was, um, understand, partially uh, researched out of Harvard Medical School and um, comes from the States. It was originally used for field side concussion, does a workup of your brain using a somatosensory set of tasks. So what I mean by somatosensory is your fingers are feeling little vibrations and you're asking questions related to that on a computer screen. So we wanted to look at how is carbon affecting your central nervous system um, and then applying the findings of that to safe driving. And again, I know you were a part of that um, study. Um, and we are just in the process at the moment of analyzing that data. I'm starting to get some preliminary results coming through, uh, which are showing some fascinating stuff. I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it here. I just, I just want people to be very cautious in that we haven't finished completely doing the analysis of the data. So please don't jump to any conclusions on what I'm telling you. But um, this is what it appears at the moment. 
Kava appears to affect your temporal order judgment. When I talk about that, it's how one side of the brain talks to the other. So again, that's another form of divided attention. So I'm going to add it to this. Kava also appears to make you more focused and your accuracy becomes better. Now, I'm not talking, uh, I'm actually talking about your, your accuracy becoming better from a negative perspective. It's almost like you become fixated um, on one point and you're not seeing what else is going on around you. So an easy way to say that this looks like it would work if you were pulling up to an intersection and you are fixated or focused on going forward, your brain is not telling you to also look left and right and the chances are you may go through. Now, this is, again, it's early days. This is what it's appearing is coming out of this, but um, we're going to analyze this data a bit more. We're going to write this up. We'll submit it to some journals to get it peer reviewed so that we, uh, we can ensure that our data is correct and that type of thing. And you guys will be able to find, or the listeners will be able to find um, this eventually on on uprosa.net, including the journal that we publish it in. So that's where we're looking at. So how do we address that? Because we're dealing with carbon as a substance that does not metabolize on the breath like alcohol. So you can't do you know, roadside testing as in a breath test. You potentially do some coordination tests. So how are we going to address this? We really need to do some public awareness. We need to let carbon drinkers know that this is what's happening to you. And we need to consider that Carver is respect. We're supposed to be respectful people. Let's reconsider how we use motor vehicles following carver use. So it's kind of the way that I'm looking at dealing with that. Um, but again, it's still early times, uh, still early in the data analysis. Um, but hopefully we're going to have something on something a lot more structured on that in the next couple of months. And I, and I like how you talk about the idea of um, you know respect and i think that goes to the earlier point too where sometimes people make these accusations of kava where they won't blame the surfboard or the you know the playstation or whatever and and and, and you've mentioned this as well like you know uh, people's choices whether it's within multiple family relations it's also within the societal relations and so um thinking about it from that standpoint like having greater knowledge and awareness of of the effects of kava um especially if you've been drinking for a long period of time and you add sleep deprivation to that. How do we continue to maintain our, our respect in the multiple relations we have, you know, with our families, with the Kava community, with the larger society as, as well. So I like how you frame that. And I'm wondering if I can bother you with this one last question. We'll wrap it up because it made me think uh, of another thing that you've commented on in the past, which seems to be a growing concern or issue as well, even within the community is the issue of quality of Kava. And, um, you know, uh, with its increased popularity, with the price fluctuations, especially over the last four or five years, the, the droughts and uh, climate crisis stuff going on as well, that may impact kava production or, or access at, at various levels at different times. There is this question of, of quality as well. And, and what are you drinking? What kind of kava are you drinking? Is it mixed with sawdust or flour or something else? And how can you tell or how do you know or what are your thoughts around around that or maybe some advice that we can give folks who uh, are maybe concerned with it or unaware of, of this growing issue? Mm, absolutely. And, with, and as you're saying, with the environmental conditions that have happened in uh, um, Winston, which was um, devastating a few years ago and around um, Tonga and Fiji, and the, the price of kava has gone up. And because kava is sold by weight, there's obvious obviously there's been an attraction to maybe add something else to boost weight and to boost profits. So we've seen um, kava coming in to the country that has been um, 
cut with sawdust, as you've said, with flour. One of the biggest concerns that uh, we've seen is covered it's been cut with dirt. And the concern is, where did that dirt come from? If that dirt was to come from near a pig farm and have salmonella in it, and somebody drinking cover was to uh, get salmonella, our concern is that it's going to be cover that will get the blame, not the soil and not the person who cut the cover. You, I don't know if you saw two nights ago on the television, um, TV1 uh, News, there was an article talking about um, uh, some Pacific Islanders in Auckland drinking kava during the COVID-19 lockdown and um, you know, saying about how irresponsible it is. Yes, it is irresponsible. My concern, though, is that if somebody was to get COVID-19 at the kava, that kava is likely to become the scapegoat as opposed to the behaviour of the people who should not have been drinking kava there. So, yes, we've got these things that are wrapped up again in the narratives of kava, um, where do you get quality cover from? Because that, uh, that is naturally is, is a concern. If I was people out there um, looking for cover, I would ask Pacific Islanders and say, what are you drinking and why are you, and where are you buying it and why are you buying it from there? There are some very good uh, cover retailers in New Zealand. Um, cover World International uh, is selling um, online in New Zealand. Um, Wakanavu is selling online in New Zealand. Taki Mai, Coming from Fiji, they were selling online in New Zealand. Um, there are a number of good quality covers. Be very careful about going down to um, some local dairies and just grabbing some cover because you don't know what it's cut with. So, yeah, that's probably my advice when it comes to that. But there is a big concern at the moment. And the big concern is that it becomes cover that gets the blame for other people's misbehaviour, I suppose, whether that's additives or drinking during, drinking in groups during COVID-19. We just don't want to go back to seeing what happened with uh, the European cover ban of the early 2000s because what that actually ends up by doing is affecting the livelihoods of our Pacific families back in the Pacific in developing nations who are trying to get ahead, who are trying to educate their kids, who are trying to uh, you know, lift their health standards and their local infrastructure standards who rely on the sale of cover. So you know, it's, it's a wider issue and um, those are our concerns. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think that's uh, some good advice. You know, uh, think about where your cover is coming from, uh, wh you know, uh, why are you getting it from that place and being mindful of, yeah, all these, the, these other issues. And unfortunately, there are all those pressures that are profit driven that have caused some of these ruptures, right? Because cava itself, as you mentioned before, and the, you know, and the WHO, like it's practically for the most part harmless. Um, and uh, it, the, the key is, is people and what we do with it. And if we're responsible um, and, and maintaining or upholding the mana of kava, I would say, mm. uh, and, 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 and of each other as we do that. So I appreciate your time, bro. Um, and, and looking forward to the, uh, or the international uh, COVID-19 uh, electronic kava later and encourage others to do the same and, 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 you know, be physically distant at this time, but keep those social ties going. I know it's different online and it's different being distant and sacrifice right now for being able to get back to it hopefully sooner if we can tackle this thing. Appreciate your, uh, your, your time and your knowledge and your generosity, bro. We'll, we'll keep in touch. Eh? And, and um, bro, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do this. Our relationship started at Kava. And um, so that's, that's important for us, you know, as, as we've been through and we've done a lot of work together. And now, you know, seeing you um, being part um, 
of, of a wider group of us who are also influenced by other cover researchers and um, changing the world slowly. So I uh, really appreciate it. Really appreciate what you're doing. And um, I look forward to catching up in the future and um, yeah, extrapolating out into areas like Christianity. Ooh, hot topic. Yeah, man. Juicy one. We'll save that one for another episode. <laughs>